The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location at the Flight 93 Memorial in Somerset County. On September 11, 2001, the world changed forever. And because of the actions of the brave passengers of United Flight 93, Pennsylvania will be forever tied to that fateful day. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss Flight 93 and its memorial is author Tom McMillan and Keith Newland of the National Park Service. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thank Good to be here, Brady. Let's tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, well, my day job is Vice President of Communications for the Pittsburgh Penguins, who just won the Stanley Cup, of course. Uh, but I, my passion is history, and I volunteer out here at the Flight 93 National Memorial, and I'm on the, the board of the Friends of Flight 93. And your book? And uh, Oh, yes. I, and I, <laughs> I wrote Flight 93. I'm the uh, Deputy Superintendent of the five parks here in western Pennsylvania. We have four other parks uh, that we help to manage, Allegheny Portage, Johnstown Flood, Fort Necessity, and Friendship Hill. Been with the service uh, 37 years, and, uh, and I've been here at this site since November of 2002. Unlike most historic sites, most of us can remember this event. Uh, where were you on 9-11? On 9-11, I was at a staff meeting mm -hmm. at, in Crescent, and uh, uh, my wife called, and it was a beautiful day, because I remember we were talking about going outside. And she called once and said, hey, what happened? Uh, there, a plane just hit the Trade Center. And I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. It was probably an accident. She called later and said, it's no accident. You need to get outside. And about that time, the phone started ringing off the hook for me because they were talking about closing national parks. And they had no service. So I was trying to coordinate with, with other national park service sites. Tom? I was going to work in downtown Pittsburgh. And uh, it must have been just before 9 that I got to the office because the first plane hit at 8.46. And I walked in, and the receptionist didn't even say a word. She just pointed to the conference room where there was a television. And I went in there, and I, I saw and seen the aftermath of the first flight. We watched the second flight uh, hit the tower, which I think you know your, your mind plays tricks on you now that looking back that you know the story. But I think that a lot of us thought that was a replay of the first flight. We didn't immediately recognize that it was a it was a, as a second plane crashing into a second building, which I think at that point everybody started to realize that, that something was up. I, I also distinctly remember um, looking out after the third plane hit the Pentagon 
and it was almost as though downtown Pittsburgh evacuated, like the entire city was going home. I remember uh, just this mass of people going up to the parking lots near the old Mellon Arena. That w that will always stick with me. You know, we we know what happened now through the 2020 uh, clarity of, of of hindsight, but back then everybody was bewildered and people just wanted to get home. Can we talk about the history of this location where we are before 9/11? Well, this this uh, area was originally a farming area and then it, it uh, moved into a very large strip mine area. There were several coal companies in this area. You're sitting on reclaimed strip mine. Uh, the area that the, uh, of the impact site was actually a head wall. There was a very large head wall where they stopped coal mining and that's part of what the plane hit when it went into the ground. We have about oh, uh, 13, we have about 1400 acres in ownership here. Most of it is strip mine. Uh, and you see the topos and the original contours that were laid here. The coal miners were required to take a topo and put the, the top topography back to what it was as close as possible. So what you see is what they reclaimed uh, at the time. This is a story that, even though it happens in New York and, and here in Shanksville, uh, other places, the story that begins far away in Afghanistan. So could we talk about who these hijackers were, maybe, and, and some of their motivations? Well, I think to don't really really know where the beginning is. The, 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 the concept of flying planes into buildings was first proposed to Osama bin Laden in, uh, in 1996 by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's uh, still in Guantanamo Bay. It was his idea. It was a much more grandiose plan at that point. Uh, bin Laden did not accept it. He thought it was probably too grandiose, but he didn't say no, intriguingly. And about three years later, um, after the embassy bombings in Africa, he, uh, he summoned Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and, and gave his approval for, the, for this plan. So it took, even in that stage, uh, it, it took two more years of, of precise planning to, uh, to, to get to the attack. What was bin Laden's goal? I mean, what was his, what did he hope to accomplish with an event like this? They were, they were, they were attacking the pillars of America. They were attacking the economy, the World Trade Center. They were attacking the military, the Pentagon. They were attacking the capital. They were attacking the government. They were they were here to, to cause chaos and terror. That's what they were after. And we know they also were debating targets uh, from two of the main uh, plotters who are now in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, bin Laden very much wanted the White House. He was arguing for the White House to be hit. Um, we still don't know exactly where this plane, Flight 93, was going. We know it was headed to Washington, D.C. They dialed uh, Reagan National Airport into, into the automatic pilot system. Uh, the circumstantial evidence, though, strongly is that it was the Capitol One. That was the first day of a joint session of Congress. These guys had, had, had done their, uh, their, their planning well. And, and also, if you think of it, uh, for a non-American, the White House would be difficult to pick out from the sky. There are a lot of white buildings in D.C. The Capitol is very distinctive, as is the Trade Center, as is the Pentagon. So I think a lot of the evidence points toward the, that it was the, the Capitol. But uh, Bin Laden wanted the White House, and there were some other targets that were discussed as well. But they, uh, they again, as Keith said, they wanted uh, military, economy, government. We had dozens of people on United Flight 93 that day, not knowing what they were going into, but their backstories are, are very compelling as well. Could we talk about some of the, the people on board Flight 93? The, uh, I think if you look at the, at the manifest, in general, it would be like a manifest of any flight if you went to Pittsburgh or Philadelphia Airport today. There, you know, there were businessmen and grandparents and college students flying for the reasons that we all travel, to go to a you know, business meeting, to go on vacation, to go home. 
Um, they obviously had no idea they were they were stepping into history. There are some some fascinating stories. Uh, I can go into a couple of them. Uh, Diora Bodley was the youngest on board. She was 20 years old. She was a student at Santa Clara University uh, in California, was back east visiting college friends before the school year. Uh, and there are a lot of these kinds of stories. She had a, a ticket on a later flight, was able to get on Flight 93 to get home early. Uh, and, and that brought it to this fate. Hilda Marson was the oldest person, 79, so we went from 20 to 79. She actually was born in Germany, came through Ellis Island as a little girl, uh, raised two daughters, and was going to visit her daughter in California, but it wasn't just a vacation. She was actually moving to, in with her, with her adult daughter, had packed uh, three suitcases. So it was a very exciting day for both her uh, and her daughter. Uh, John Talignani was a World War II era veteran who was traveling with very heavy heart. His, uh, his stepson had been recently married, had gone to California on his vacation, was tragically killed in an auto accident in California. So John was actually going to a funeral. Uh, we cannot remember or forget the, the crew. We talk a lot about the passengers, but it was passengers and crew, the 40 people, the 33 passengers and seven crew. And again, some of them had, had changed their schedules. The, the captain, Jason Dahl, one of the flight attendants, Sandy Bradshaw, had, had big personal uh, events coming up in late September. Uh, Jason had his wedding anniversary. Sandy had the, the, bir the first birthday of her son. So they wanted to get some flying out of the way. So they, they, they got on the flight 93 so they could have some clear time uh, uh, late in the month, so there's a lot of fate that brought them here. There were, there was a lot of athletic prowess. There was, uh, which obviously came into play. There was a national collegiate judo champion, a national collegiate rugby champion, a guy who'd been a high school quarterback and recruited to play uh, in college, small college baseball and basketball player. And we'll get into this a little later. There also was a was a pilot on board among the passengers. There was a small plane pilot. So it was a, it was a fascinating group. I'd like to mention Rich Dog. Now he was a uh, Forest Service. I mean, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, manager, wildlife manager in, in Oregon. And he was on the plane too. And he would have, as, as Tom mentioned, he would have carried certain defensive skills with him and certain tactics that he could have could have used. He was a, a law enforcement ranger before he was a, a manager, a unit manager. So, What were the intended destinations of the 9-11 aircraft and where did they originate from? Uh, Flight 93 uh, originated from New York. And the other, the other three. Were two were in Boston. Two were from Boston, and one was from uh, D.C. Dulles in D.C. Dulles in D.C. So they picked uh, part of the planning. It, it was quite precise planning. They they chose Muhammad Atta, the the leader who who piloted the first plane that hit the the first tower of the World Trade Center, selected four flights that were scheduled to take off 25 minutes apart. So their plan was to do this so quickly that that no one could react and. Uh, they had trained on, they, the, their four hijacker pilots had sm licenses to fly small planes. They'd never flown commercial airliners. They'd practiced on simulators for 757s and 767s, which had similar cockpits. So they had, he had to pick those types of planes, and he wanted them going from uh, the east coast to the west coast with uh, maximum fuel loads for the biggest explosion. So the, the, these uh, planes, the, the date and the, and the types of planes were, were, were part of a very precise planning. And they also picked planes that were, and at that time they were sparsely populated. That was another, those cross-continental flights were sparsely populated. Tuesday, Tuesday yeah. morning, you know, yep. not, a, not a, a busy travel day. And I think right. a lot of people look back now, Keith, and the planes with those few passengers yeah. would not take off today. Exactly. The airline industry has, has changed. You would not take off on a cross-country flight with 33 passengers on, on board. We have a lot of young people ask us those questions, but that was, they were just moving planes around the country at that point. So uh, they, 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 uh, they all, they all had relatively small loads. The smallest though was, was Flight 93 with only 33 passengers and seven crew. 
It's one of the changes that you've seen in the effects of 9-11. You know what it's like to fly now, elbow to elbow, and rarely, rarely any space. So. You mentioned previously uh, some of the maybe uh, potential targets Flight 93 had in mind. How do they go about determining that? The, for, the, for the entire, uh, I think Flight 93 was always going to be uh, in D.C., whether it was the Capitol or the White House. It was, there, were, there were meetings uh, from early planning in, in Afghanistan in early 1999 with uh, bin Laden, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was kind of the mastermind of this deal, and Mohammed Ataf, who was bin Laden's uh, military uh, chief. He, he, was, he was killed in bombing shortly after 9-11. After and those were the three who basically started the planning. Some of the other pilots uh, got involved, but uh, you know, originally Khalid Sheikh Mohammed wanted uh, ten flights, uh, five on each coast, to hit uh, hit ten nine buildings, and he was going to pilot the tent and land and make a speech. Uh, Bin Laden, of course, knew that that was too grandiose; that that would have been too hard to to, uh, to uh, coordinate. So they, they they came down to to just four, which they thought was uh, was manageable. One of the interesting points from your book, a lot of people don't think about, is the timing of these flights. Flight 93 was delayed. Do you think that significantly changed the outcome? Absolutely. Uh, in that, um, again, uh, Atta chose flights for flights that were supposed to take off within 25 minutes of each other. Had that happened, this plane almost certainly would have hit its target. Uh, two things happened. Um, this plane was delayed, uh, it was supposed to take off at 8 o'clock, did not take off till 8.42. Um, just the, the hijacks did not factor in normal Newark airport traffic. It sat there on the, uh, on the tarmac on the runway for a while. So it took off later than expected. Um, they were also supposed to, to uh, hijack the plane. Their plan was it was supposed to happen within 15 minutes. Uh, that only happened on one of the flights, but the first three all did it within 30 minutes. This flight took, 30, it took 46. We're not sure exactly why these guys took longer, but the combination of the delay in taking off and the delay, according to their planning, in, in hijacking the plane, meant the plane was already over Ohio. So it was farther away, had farther to go. And I know we'll get into this in future questions more significantly. The passengers and crew were able to call loved ones on the ground and find out what was happening. I think we always talk, it's very important to say, the passengers and crew on the first three planes were, were no less brave. They just didn't know what was going on. By the time these guys were hijacked uh, at, at 9.28, two planes had already crashed and a third was heading toward the Pentagon. So the loved ones on the ground were able to tell them what was being reported on television. They were able to realize, it must have been bewildering and horrendous, but they were able to realize what was going on. And, and that kind of caused them to, to decide we have to do something. Uh, who were these hijackers, and what did they do once on board Flight 93? They, well, the, uh, there was one fewer than the original plan. There was supposed to be uh, 20 hijackers, five on each flight. One hijacker pilot and four muscle hijackers to attack the cockpit and control, control the passengers. Flight 93 only had four. Uh, they were unable to get a 20th hijacker into the country, made multiple attempts, but, but couldn't get it in. So it was uh, one hijacker pilot and, and three muscle hijackers. The pilot was uh, Ziad Jarrah. He was 26, year old, 26 years old. He was from Lebanon. Uh, he was radicalized at a mosque in uh, Hamburg, Germany. Went to an uh, Al-Qaeda training camp in Afghanistan and became one of the selected pilots. So he was involved in the planning uh, much earlier than, than, the, than the muscle men, so to speak. They were all recruited within a year, year and a half of, uh, 
of, of the plots. They all had gone, been radicalized, young men. The, the other three men on, uh, on Flight 93 were between the ages of 20 and 23. They'd gone to those training camps in Afghanistan, uh, vol volunteered for martyr missions. Um, they, when they came to the U.S., they did not know exactly what the plot was. They didn't know it was going to be airplanes. They'd been trained to do several different things. It wasn't until they got here that they knew, but they knew they were coming to the U.S. to be involved in a, in a martyrdom mission. Once on board, how did they take control? In, in some ways, we don't really know. Um, Ramsey Ben Oshib, who was one of the plotters who's in, uh, in Guantanamo Bay, uh, did uh, talk to investigators, and, and he described plans where there would be two, uh, if you look at the, at the manifest, this is, this is what happened. Two of the muscle hijackers sat very close to, to first class, sat very close to the cockpit in first class. Two were a little farther back. The two closest to the, to the cockpit were the, were the break-in team. They would uh, attack the cockpit at some point. The other two would control the passengers and crew and push them to the back of the plane. Now that happened on all four flights. They were very successful. They waited to a certain moment. We can't ever know that. Uh, was it because somebody opened the cockpit door? Did they attack one of the one of the uh, flight attendants? That's that's likely the case. We know of at least two uh, flights. Flight attendants were stabbed. Uh, let let me into the cockpit. They attacked the pilots. Obviously, they're coming in with knives uh, from behind. The pilots are strapped in. Um, there was there was a battle, but the the pilots you know fought back in all instances, but really had no chance against armed hijackers coming from behind. They got them, dragged them out of the cockpit, and then the hijacker pilot slipped in to take over control of the plane. They pushed the passengers and crew to the back, uh, and that's generally what we can piece together is what happened. No one will ever know for sure, but for, especially from the phone calls on we got it from Flight 93 and some of the other flights, that, that seems to be the the best we can piece together as to what happened. Were you allowed to have knives on an airplane? Oh yeah, you were allowed to carry a variety of things that we can't do anymore. Another change from 9-11, knives. The, and, and the hijackers, these guys uh, researched all of this. Americans, I didn't know that. Most Americans probably wouldn't have known that, but certainly a, 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 a knife of four inches or less was, was legal, would not have been stopped. Uh, and so they went to stores like Walmart and Home Depot and bought some multi-purpose tools uh, some of those were found at, at the Flight 93 site and, and other sites. There were receipts found in Florida of these guys having, having purchased them. So all the evidence points to, uh, to that. That's what they did. Yeah, there are a lot of rules that are now in place. The cockpits also weren't very much enforced by exactly right. at, at, at that point. So we just, um, they, they kind of attacked the soft underbelly of, of aviation as a, as a country. You know, things were going so well, we'd fallen asleep a little bit. Uh, you know, there was a, there was a, a survey not long before that, and the biggest concern of passengers on air, on air travel was uh, repairs uh, on planes. Were the, were the planes safe mechanically to fly? Terrorism was not something that, that we, we thought about. I think that uh, it, one thing, one find that has surprised me down here, outside of this fence we found was surgical knife. And I'm talking about, you know, the surgical knife that you carry into an operating room. And, you know, that if that was one of the knives that was used to attack the pilots, they had no chance because they were extremely, just extremely sharp. And that, that kind of amazes me that you can find those things on a plane, uh, and not anymore. But. Can we talk about some of the things that were located at the crash site? Sure. Yeah, I mean, of course, the cockpit recorder and the flight data recorder were recovered, and that was key in, in, in establishing what you see in the visitor center as far as flight path and, and uh, movements of the plane. Yeah, I think, and, and 
One of the things that, that strikes me is how fast this plane was going, which was 563 miles an hour, and how hard it hit. Uh, those two items, which are located in the back of the plane, were found 15 feet and 25 feet into the ground. So it did, now it did it crash at an unfathomable speed right on the area of the reclaimed strip mine. So the ground wasn't as consolidated as as no earth has been put back it's right where it hit and they they found objects in the plane 35 feet deep they actually dug to 40 feet deep to to make sure but i think it hits you when those two objects in the back of the plane were found that deep into the ground that lets you know the the impact of this crash the, the theory because of where they found items is that about the front third of the plane basically snapped off shattered and flew into the hemlock trees over our shoulders, they found a lot of material in those hemlock trees. A lot of the hijacker uh, identification materials, uh, Zia Jara's passport, some other things, luggage, uh, all, all, all sorts of things that they found. The other thing to remember here is that the FBI knew from the start that this would be the site where they would find the most evidence because the plane did not hit a building. Those planes hit concrete and steel in New York and in, uh, in Washington, D.C. They were destroyed, they were embedded in buildings. This hit the ground. Uh, there was a fire, certainly, because of all the, the fuel on board, but they talk about a huge fireball. The, the citizens talk about a huge fireball. But it didn't burn, burn very long because there was really nothing down there to burn. Um, so a lot of that material that moved forward or went into the ground was in fact recovered. It wasn't in great shape, it was shattered, but enough of the things were recovered that we can, uh, I think the FBI would, would tell you that they, they pieced together more of the plot from what they found here in Somerset County than in New York or DC, which, which, which makes sense. I agree, I mean, they found one of the credit cards of the terrorists here and that opened up the financial sort of uh, weave that, that they started to put together. They, they were right on the money about it, and they committed a lot of agents to this to this investigation. Flight 93 getting back was delayed on the runway. Uh, would it have seen potentially the first tower hit if delayed any longer? Well, it, it very well could have. Uh, the, the first plane hit the World Trade Center at 846. Flight 93 scheduled to take off at 8 o'clock, took off at 842 with Newark and it obviously took a few minutes to turn around and, and, and head west across Pennsylvania. So it would have been on its way and uh, New York City would have been behind it at, at, by 8.46, but very close, a few minutes more, and they may have seen that plane go into the tower, either from the tarmac, the runway, or from the air. Who knows what impact that would have had uh, if, if all of a sudden then the, the pilots are radioing what's, go, what's going on. Again, there are, a lot of, lot of, there are a lot of what ifs to this story. That didn't happen, but it was very, it was very, very close to them seeing it. I always wonder what, what the impact would have been had they seen that. Now, we've mentioned the flight path a few times. Do we know the exact flight path of Flight 93? Exactly. It's laid out in the, in the, uh, in the visitor center complex adjacent to the learning center and the final microseconds are laid out beside the memorial wall. From finding the flight data recorder. This was again the only flight where they found both black boxes, the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder. The New York flights, the two New York flights, they found nothing. At the Pentagon, they found the flight data recorder, but not the and the cockpit voice recorder. I think was recovered, but but it wasn't it wasn't working. So so much of the evidence, what we know, not just of Flight 93, but of this whole plot, came from from those two black boxes, which allowed them to plot the, the, entire, the entire flight path. It was going across Pennsylvania. You can see, we know for, for a number of reasons that it was hijacked at 928. You can see where it was. It was just, just about at the Pennsylvania-Ohio border. It went almost as far as Cleveland, just mm -hmm. about that area when it, when it turned around and started veering uh, toward the southwest, basically coming 
almost across Pittsburgh uh, toward DC. At that point, of course, it was being flown by a hijacker pilot who'd never flown a commercial airliner before, but with, through automatic pilot, uh, they, were, they were headed in the right direction. It's an interesting story that how we acquired that flight data because in the time frame that, that information hadn't been released and we had a, one of our researchers actually foiled it, foiled it and said, hey, we'd like to see it. So it, that's a time, that's the sort of the evolution of what happened at this site and how information eventually was received here. So. Now we're talking about an era just before the dawn of cell phones, smartphones. Uh, how did people on board Flight 93 find out what happened in the other States? Certainly it was the year before smartphones. We had cell phones. And I think it's, it's one of the things that when I do my talks, I, I talk about the things that, that people, rem that, there's history and memory. Um, uh, a lot of, I think a lot of people paid a lot of attention to the reporting on, on, flight, uh, on September 11th for about seven to 10 days that year. And then they had to move on with the rest of their lives. So for them, and we see this from visitors here, a lot of their memory of what happened is what was reported in those first seven to 10 days. And a lot of it was wrong. That's not the media's fault. It's just, it was, it was chaos, it was bewilderment. People were trying to figure out what happened. It was reported very early that the calls all came from cell phones. Um, and that led to conspiracy theories. How could you call from a cell phone from 35,000 feet? Well, they did not. There were, there were 37 phone calls from Flight 93. 35 of them came from air phones. The Verizon air phones that were seat back phones that the older passengers will remember, they were a staple of flight back then. You could pull them off, slide a credit card through and make a call from 35,000 feet. They're all video screens now. Young people don't know what they were, uh, but they were commonplace. And it also, uh, that data allowed, uh, and it helped the FBI in its investigation because you could see not only who the calls were made to, where they were made from on board, so you know where the passengers were, were seated at that point, and how long the calls took. Some of the calls were very brief, some lasted uh, 20 minutes or so. The final two calls, when the plane was much lower, were made from cell phones. There were two cell phone calls, but most of them were from, were from air phones, and that's still, I think a lot of people uh, are, are confused by that today. Now we've mentioned 928 very specifically. How do we know that? A couple of reasons. Uh, one, by looking at the flight data recorder, the plane dipped uh, right at that point. Um, I don't know if it was dramatically, but it was certainly enough to notice that something was going on. But also, in communications with air traffic control, uh, one of the pilots had keyed that microphone. Probably under attack, had keyed that microphone. Um, uh, probably to let, try to let people in the ground know what was going on. And you could hear uh, commotion and, and the pilot saying, Mayday, Mayday, get out of here, get out of here. And that continued for about 30 seconds. So those, those air traffic control recordings became very valuable in establishing that time. And then when we got the flight data recorder, you could see the dip. Okay, this is when, this is when that happened. And after, shortly after that, the plane uh, rose to about 40,000 feet, which is much higher than its, its normal cruising uh, altitude. Again, Zia Jarrah, who'd never flown a commercial plane, was in charge, and then, and then he started to turn around. Could you take us through how the passengers actually reclaimed the aircraft from the hijackers? Well, first would have been, the first call was at 9.30. Uh, one of the uh, uh, passengers, Tom Burnett, placed a call uh, just two minutes afterward. Um, and he, the, the idea of these calls, um, from the idea of the passengers and crew, was to inform their loved ones what was going on. The unintended consequence 
was that they found out what was going on on the ground. They obviously had no idea that there were other hijackings going on. Their world was just in that plane. I mean, imagine how bewildering, confusing, terrifying that would have been. Uh, one of the first class passengers near Tom Burnett had been stabbed. This happened on at least two of the flights, probably probably all of them. We know on, on Flight 11 and Flight 93, there, there was testimony um, from people calling the ground that a passenger had been stabbed. Probably the Al-Qaeda man wanted to show that they were in charge and that this was deadly to, to frighten the rest of the passengers and crew. Um, so they knew something, uh, they, they knew right away this wasn't a normal hijacking, the kind we see in the movies where you're gonna land and there's gonna be a demanded ransom and everybody's gonna be okay. Uh, and then other people started to make calls. Uh, some of them were re recorded as early as 9.37. Through these calls, they're all getting information uh, from different loved ones on the ground that planes have hit the World Trade Center. And, and again, how bewildering that must have been. Uh, you don't really hear, though, uh, in the chronology about a plan to take back the plane until they get the word of the Pentagon. The Pentagon flight uh, crashed at 9.37. So by the time it gets reported, and it gets, it's probably 9.45 that they're getting this information. Uh, at least two of the passengers were told by their wives that the Pentagon has been hit. And in my view, from looking at it, and we have to take the, the facts that we have it and make our best interpretation. So this is some interpretation, but I think that's what galvanized them. That's when they absolutely knew that they weren't going home, they weren't gonna land, they were gonna hit a building somewhere and they had to do something and, and they started to act. Um, we can never know their precise plan. Nobody ever talked about that. A couple of them did mention, we're going to do something. We're going to try to take back the plane. We're going to attack the guy with the bomb. Uh, clearly, one of the muscle hijackers had a fake bomb tied around his, uh, his waist, used to threaten the passengers. I'm going to blow the plane up. Um, they determined after a while that it was probably a fake, which it was. There were no explosives uh, found at the crash site. Again, this, this pattern w was found on several other flights. So the, the pattern of takeover was, was the same. We just got more of the testimony from these people calling. The, the story of 9-11 in many ways is told by those brave people, uh, passengers and crew calling their loved ones on the ground. Uh, so it, it took about 10 minutes for them to formulate their plan. Uh, every time I went to 757, I looked down that narrow aisle and think, my God, how, did, how were they going to do this? It, was, it had to be single file. Um, it started at 957. Again, we know that from several reasons. Two uh, ladies, one passenger, one flight attendant were both on the, the phone, two loved ones on the ground, and they both said something akin to, everybody's running to first class, everybody's running to, to the cockpit, I've got to go, they're doing it. So we have that evidence. We also have in the cockpit voice recorder, the pilot, Ziad Jarrah, saying in Arabic, uh, what's that, a fight? Two of, the two of the hijackers were in the cockpit. Two were the mu muscle men trying to control the passengers and crew. So they heard a commotion back there. So those two things basically, basically confirmed to us that that's when it started. Um, you know, the movie United 93 is, is probably as accurate a depiction as you can get. Certainly they would have gone for the first two uh, muscle hijackers. On the, the cockpit voice recorder, which none of us have heard, only, only the family members and, and a jury in the Masawi trial have actually heard it, but a detailed transcript has been released by the FBI. Uh, not only uh, saying what was said, uh, when it was said, male or female speaker, English or Arabic. So it allows you to, to, to kind of 
decipher a little bit maybe in the chaos of what was happening. And there are Arabic screams in Arabic at this time. So we can assume that fighting is going on and, and the male passengers in particular are overpowering uh, these guys. Jeremy Glick was the man I mentioned. He was a, he was a national judo champion at the University of Rochester. Uh, Mark Bingham was on the two-time uh, national champion University of California rugby team. He was a guy who'd run with the Bulls. He was a daredevil. Uh, Tom Burnett had played high school quarterback, recruited to play in, in college, was uh, appointed to the Air Force Academy, did not attend, but very much a leader, athletic type. Todd Beamer, whose name is probably the most famous, was a small college uh, baseball and basketball player, and, and others as well. Richard Guadagno was, 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 a, was a trained law enforcement officer. Joey Naki was a barrel-chested weightlifter. There were people on board who would have done something. Uh, Joey Naki was one who didn't call. You know, the, uh, you know, 12 people called, 28 didn't. We don't know. That a lot of history was lost because of that. And some of their loved ones, Richard Guadagno's parents, he would have never called. A lot of people are like that. They wouldn't want to worry their loved ones. I can tell you, anybody listening, hopefully you're never in that situation, but I know the families from talking, the families who got those calls are much more comforted. There is some clear, they, they heard what was going on. The other ones have just the, 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 the bravery of silence of their, of their loved ones. I, I think the families probably would have wanted to know, but these people, that's their makeup. I probably would have been like that before researching this story. I'm not going to worry anybody on, uh, on the ground. So uh, I, I thought, you look at some of the personalities. Richard Guadagno did not call. His background just indicated he would have been involved. Uh, Joey Naki was not the kind of guy who would have said, you guys go ahead. I'm going to sit here. You tell me what, how your, how your counterattack worked out. So, I think you have another personalities who have been involved here. Um, they come barreling down, and there were some athletic women too, some very determined women. Uh, people had different, different roles. I'm sure there were logistics, there was security, there was comfort. Hilda Marston was 79 years old. She wasn't going to be up fronting, confronting the hijackers, but she might have been consoling people, uh, offering sympathy. There were some people who were involved in prayer work, uh, very religious. So I think everybody, we, we, we think everybody had a role here uh, in, in the planning and the execution. Um, they, obviously the, the two muscle hijackers were able to impede them a little bit, but they, they, they got them out of the way and the, the recording, you can hear the, the chaos. It's interesting to me, they, they, they seem to get to the cockpit door uh, just before 10 o'clock. There are some, just what's described as loud shouts and these microphones were in the cockpit. So I think it's a reasonable conclusion that, 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 that they were there. As they were getting there though, Zia Jarrah, whether he was taught this or came up with it on his own, started to rock the plane from side to side. You can see on the, fl on the flight data recorder, the plane is going 30 degree angles. If you've ever gotten up on a plane uh, to go to the bathroom, when there was a little bit of turbulence, you know how hard it is to walk? Imagine a pilot, 30 degrees, a pilot who didn't know what he was doing. Uh, that must have been terrifying. Uh, there are sounds of things crashing, must have been plates and luggage and everything was falling around. But Girard couldn't do that forever or, or the plane wouldn't have gotten to its destination. So we had to level it out and uh, they, they reformed and, and they attacked, started attacking in the cockpit. It's, it's interesting to me um, that just after 10 o'clock, you, you, you would heard shouts in the cockpit, in the cockpit. You heard someone in what's described as a native English-speaking voice say, in the cockpit, if we don't, we'll die. And I think it's important here that 
we as Americans have ways of taking, you know, this is a professor, have ways of taking history, great story, and building myth and legend on top of it. And it's where, how many times have you heard the passengers and crew of Flight 93 took the plane down, crashed the plane to save lives. They, they, they gave up their lives uh, to, to save people in the capital of the White House. Well, that's what happened, but I don't think that was their intention. In the cockpit, if we don't, we'll die, means to me, they had an alternative to dying. They were trying to save the plane. The only way that could have done, no one said this in the call, but the only way that could have been possible is if they knew that Donald Green, who was on board, had a small plane pilot's license. He knew aviation. He didn't know how to fly commercial airliners any more than Zia Gerard did. But maybe there would have been a chance. He knew aviation, he worked in aviation, and he could fly small planes if they could get him into the cockpit in enough time on a clear day with, with instruction every step of the way from air traffic control. Still might have been a long shot, but if you're in that plane, you want to take it. So I believe that their intention was not to crash the plane. Their, their, their intention was to somehow land the plane. And it just, the, the counterattack, unfortunately, unbeknownst to them, started too late. It started when the, when the plane was, was too low. Uh, and, a, you know, did they get in the cockpit? We'll never know. The FBI has not, would not, has not concluded that they did. They don't know. There, there's something in the, in the recorder, though, that if you look at it, uh, it, it just after 10.02, when the plane crashed at 10.03, so this is right, right in, in the final moments, there's a loud shout in English, turn it up. It's followed by a loud shout in Arabic, Arabic, push it down, pull it down. To me, that sounds like a battle for control. Maybe I'm reaching, but it's, I can't imagine what else it would be at that point. These are very loud. They certainly would have been able to, to, to knock down the cockpit door. Uh, and, and I think it sounds like to me, I believe they got into the cockpit, but because they didn't have knives, it wasn't a planned attack like the hijackers did, they couldn't get Jarrah and Seed El Gamdi out of there. They were fighting with them, but they couldn't get them out of there. And uh, shortly after 10.03, uh, the plane at this point virtually turned upside down, came over the hillside behind you, uh, Brady, and crashed at 10.03 and 11 seconds in the, in the field behind us uh, at a 40 degree angle uh, at 563 miles an hour. Were there any eyewitnesses on the ground that, that saw this struggle? Well, I, there were people certainly uh, in this area who saw the plane in flight in its final moments uh, out in Stoystown. Uh, people who were, were interviewed by the New York Times and other papers uh, on September 11th and September 12th who, who, again, not knowing the story yet, talked about the, the, the plane going side to side, the, the, the wings being rocked, they realized that they saw the battle going on right there. So it was so low that, that people in this area, not a heavily populated area, it's not a major city, uh, but, but, but did see the, the plane coming in. Again, it was going, uh, when it crashed, to 563 miles an hour, so you saw it for a split second. But there, was, there were some men working on the, on the hill right here, right over the crash site uh, that morning. There were t yeah, right behind us where the Visitor Center and Learning Center was at, there was a scrapyard, a very large scrapyard. There were two gentlemen cutting. They were cutting up large rollers, and they saw the, they, they were the actual eyewitness, and they actually saw the plane go into the ground. There were two gentlemen behind us on the farm that were working that, that reported that they saw the, the plane go in the ground, but they were painting. They may have had their backs to the, the, the actual event. These two gentlemen actually saw the plane go in the ground. I'm sure they were interviewed by the FBI, but they have never given an oral history. We, it, we, yeah. you know, we're still collecting oral histories here. Uh, 
And there's, you know, there are some people uh, who, who understandably, it was just too close, it was too traumatic at that time. Um, didn't want to come forward and volunteer, but uh, the Park Service and the Friends of Flight 93 are, uh, are, are still here and willing to take that if anybody has a story of, of that day. The other thing that, that struck me uh, in reading the oral histories and, and talking to some folks who lived in the area, uh, again, not a heavily populated area, but, but people live all around here. And they, some saw it, some heard it, but the thing that struck me, they felt it. The thing that comes through in their interviews is they felt it hit the ground. And imagine a plane of that size going 563 miles an hour, uh, crashing at, at that full throttle speed into the ground. And, and uh, those were some of the people who got here first. Uh, they weren't eyewitnesses to the crash, but they were eyewitnesses to the scene. You know, it took the FBI probably a couple of hours to get here. Um, and state police still. State police were still. They they got here quickly, but not that quickly. Right. But th this this was this was a well-traveled area. So, right. uh, in some cases, the citizens and the local firemen from the Shanksville Fire Company were the were the first people on the scene, uh, kind of bewildered, wandering around, wondering uh, what what the heck had happened. Well, they, they were looking th for a whole plane. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were they were looking for it and uh, and and just were bewildered what what had happened. Just uh, and and the thing that that hit me too, even uh, from talking to some people who were here later in the day again in the era before smartphones uh, some of them said they they were aware of watching on television what happened in new york that morning but then this is a, 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 a catastrophe that happens in your own area many of them did not make the connection that that this would have been something that was part of a plot uh, why would it have been in somerset county exactly uh, and and uh wally miller the the local coroner who's so much a part of this story told me it wasn't really until the fbi guys started showing up in their black vehicles and their cell phones and he said we were all he said all his quote all of us somerset county hicks were surprised that all the fbi guys had cell phones because everybody didn't back then uh and and that's when he knew it, it might have been part of something bigger the other thing i'll just throw in here brady too we get asked uh you know I, I do, uh, I'm a volunteer ambassador out here. We get asked often by young people who can't understand mm -hmm. why there are so few photos and why people didn't take photos with their cell phones. And it simply is that was just before the that era the where we had phones, uh, we had cameras in our phones. It was right before that the technology totally changed. September 11th would be remembered completely differently if it happened now. With all, imagine all the photos that right. even first responders and people would have taken that would have, one, helped us understand, but also that they added to the chaos. Imagine if you had Twitter and Facebook and Instagram back then. We did not. So it's sometimes harder, what we try to do with the visitor center, to teach young people who were either very young or weren't born yet, who, who don't understand in that context, it, it seems to them so old, so uh, so surreal and odd that you wouldn't have had uh, those those photos, but but we didn't. I had a couple of people. You talked about the impact into that headwall. I've had at least three people who have come up to me since then and talked about they felt it. And if you remember, there was a a, a very large headwall that's been reclaimed, but they hit that wall, and that was not reclaimed strip. That was hard wall. That was natural natural sandstone and you know people made claims to me that you know when it hit the sandstone it ruined my well it cracked my foundation and that's how and Tom's exactly right that's how people remember they remember that jolt the kids at the school remember the jolt the windows chattered and that that, that school's a good mile mile and a half away could we talk about some of the challenges of the site going from a crime scene to a memorial now to a national park 
Yeah, the crime scene, I mean, the, the, the investigation only lasted about 10 to 11 days, and then they were off site. But then the coroner kept the, the site in his possession as a crime scene for a number of years. So we had the area fence, and there was concern about people who were coming to do things that they shouldn't have done. Uh, this site is a reclaimed strip mine. That throws everything off the books. This is not Pittsburgh. This is not a residential lot. There are no soils here that grow anything that are worth anything. We do have growth here now. So you have a reclaimed strip mine. You had a number of landowners who were uh, involved with, you know, putting the, the parcels together. I think our biggest challenge is that it's hard to, to grow anything here. You can't treat anything here. And you, you get, you're getting the effect here right now, wind. Wind blows all the time. We just recently planted some of those tall trees and the, the wind was blowing them over. So that's part of the problem, but that's also part of the beauty of this site because the site is in a state of reclamation. It's in a state of healing. That's what the architect wanted. Uh, he, he, he was here, he, select, he was selected for this design because he maintained this open field. You talk to family members, they remember coming here, they remember the wind, and they remember this open field. And that's what's been maintained here. We're on the fringes. Everything that's here points to the crash site, and that's what the architect wanted. I think it, interesting point that this site that we're sitting on now, the overlook was, was actually the place where the family members first viewed the crash site on those days after the crash, September 12th, 13th, in, in those days, it was still a crime scene. They couldn't go down there. Right. So they, they, they came here. And this, these are where folks might have seen the photos of those hay bales where people started to leave mementos. Still leave mementos today, but that was where the tradition started, right, right up here. And this was also, people may recognize this, this was one of the three sites of the temporary memorials in the, in the 10 years before uh, the first part of the memorial was opened in, in, in 2011. So um, all of this uh, share, th this site really shares the history and I thought the you know the architect Paul Mur Murdoch did uh, I don't know how architect, architects do their work did, did a fabulous job of making this a tribute to the rural field in Somerset County where the plane crashed I mean, obviously there's a little bit of building out here there has have to be some memorialization I, I think it's proper it's not overdone it's not what you would expect in, in Washington DC or New York City some people do come and and they're disappointed they say where's the monument he didn't want that. He wanted it to be the field where the plane crashed, that most of this field looks the way it did on September 10th or on September 11th at, at, at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and that's part, of, that's part of the magic of this place. And, and as it continues to grow and there have been trees planted, it, it'll continue to mature over the years. I think that, you know, I, I've been on a number of walks through with people that come down and here for the first time. And then when they get there, they're like, first they go, oh my word, this is large, this is huge. And, and now people are beginning to grasp it. But then once they stand, and they stand for, I don't know, 30 seconds or 45 seconds down at the wall, and the wind hits their face, they stop and they just say, this is exactly right. This is what it should be. It's an open memorial. And we, you know, we're starting to see more and more tribute rides, more and more efforts to, to come to the site and pay tribute. And that's part of this grassroots effort too. This is a grassroots memorial. It wasn't pushed, you know, Congress did establish it as a national memorial, but there were a number of groups that pushed that up. And that's what happens here all the time. We have grassroots volunteer efforts. We have great volunteers like Tom here all the time. People come here and they want to volunteer and they want to contribute and they want to talk about this site. And that's what it's really all about. It's not about all of us here. It's about all the public coming here and paying tribute. And it, it was the site that was, and people are always stunned by this when I say that because it's such a heart-tugging uh, story of courage and American patriotism, but this was the hardest memorial to fund. Um, and people ask why. And I think one of the reasons is many of the people who, who uh, perished in the World Trade Center 
uh, were from the New York area. Uh, it, 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 was, it was home for the families. Uh, many of the people in, in the Pentagon were either from or lived in Northern Virginia or D.C. Nobody from anywhere near Somerset County died here. The plane took off and Newark was going to California. So you had, and you also had a, a smaller group of families. There were, there were 40 people on board this flight. So you had 40 families from not only across the country, but across the world, from Japan to Germany, who, who had to, first of all, come together and bond together as a group. Ironically, Somerset County is a great part of this story, led by the local coroner, mm -hmm. Wally Miller, who was the uh, local funeral director, who told them that they should organize, uh, and, and, and they did, and they pay homage to Wally and his efforts uh, to this day. But it, it was grassroots from the start. Um, a lot of people come to and say, where was I when I first came? We have to say, what year did you come? Depending <laughs> right. on which, which temporary memorial you were, you were at. They did get enough, there wasn't enough money to fund uh, Paul Murdoch's full memorial on the 10th anniversary, which had been the original goal, but there was enough to open the original part of the memorial down there, the walkway and the wall of names, which marks the flight path, to open that for the families. Uh, and then in, just last year in 2014, we were able to open the visitor center and the learning center, which it, for people, viewer, viewers, if, you've, if you were here before 2014, you haven't really been to the memorial because this adds the educational aspect that we never had before. It was moving, but unless you were here uh, one of the times when there was a ranger talk, you really didn't get the story. We had no way to do that. Now there, there's just a fantastic, solemn, educational, uh, basically museum in there that, 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 that tells the story. So you get to experience that part of the educational process and still walk down near the crash site, see the wall of names. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really come, to, uh, come full circle. I think too that you know uh, we, uh, I have a lot of questions and there are some people that come that that aren't so keen on federal funding and I have to tell people all the time that 45 million dollars of the 60 million used to raise for construction here was raised through private donations, so that's a that's a large sum. So there are a lot of people who come here and they want to see and they contribute and they continue to contribute. I wanted to talk about that that ending exhibit that Tom mentioned too because there was a lot of we had a lot of debate and the people that that, they, that put that together. I mean. And it was the what if, what what if, and what's changed. And quite frankly, the the folks that designed the exhibit couldn't get to that answer. So that's why we have all the uh, people lost on 9/11, as opposed to what's changed since 9/11. Because just yesterday, it's still an ongoing story. But I think that you'll find out. You know, you see, you'll, you're going to see it again tonight. Paris was attacked several months ago, and they were resilient. They said they're not taking us down. This is where it started. It started right here because it, they may have lost their lives, but this is where it started. And you see that time and time again. Can we talk about the balance that you have to strike at a site like this between memorialization and education? Because a lot of people maybe never knew Gettysburg as a battlefield started as a memorial. Now it's a, it's a very different experience. Could you talk about how you keep that balance? Well, I think, you know, Gettysburg, that's a good example. I mean, Gettysburg was established and they always had those, those war talks or war visits because they were bringing West Point students down to study the battle and get the tactics and, and understand that. Here, the, the balance is, is key because we're still talking about their heroic actions, but there's still a lot of the story that's not yet told. And it will be another 20 or 25 years because then family members will have, have passed on. I mean, that's just the way that this will happen. We get, we get flack all the time about having four terrorists listed on the plane. That's all we do. We don't talk about their background. We don't talk about anything else. We have their names and their hometowns. And people are like, why do we have that there? It's just like the Holocaust. Somebody did that. Somebody did it. These, these terrorists did it. So we, we felt 
we felt very strongly about that. I got, uh, and I expected it, but I got some flack for the book for writing as much as I did about the terrorists. But I think, one, it, the book is a history. It's part of history. Uh, they were, the, they pulled off the plot. But also, I don't think you can appreciate the real story here, which is the courage and yeah, the bravery courage. and the tenacity and the determination of the passengers and crew, unless you know how meticulously Al-Qaeda planned to do this. I mean, it, it was proposed in 96. It was endorsed by bin Laden in 99. So that's two years of intense planning. Uh, and, and these poor people had 30 minutes 30 with, minutes. with no, they had no idea this was gonna happen when they get on, on the plane. You can't appreciate their story unless you know the hijackers. Right. I think that's exactly. why I was, was adamant with doing this. But, but I, I also do think it, it is different here. There's sensitivity not just with family members, but just with people and their memories. that they, It's still so current. Uh, it's not like going to Gettysburg or Valley Forge or anything, or, or, or now even World War II memorials where most of the veterans are, are alive or, or very old. And most of us did not experience it. You know, I, I will never, I could never view Pearl Harbor the way my parents did. I, I, I want, still want to visit there one day. I've read a lot about it, but I can never comprehend the terror of that day. And people who were born, some watching this show probably after September 11, 2001, can never comprehend what what we felt. It, it's so still so raw and sensitive, and I think that's the that's what the Park Service has really had to deal with. And I think done a great job of balancing that. You're never going to please everybody, but uh, it, it is a memorial, always will be. But it is time to tell the history too, and 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 part of this is designed to tell the history for those people who weren't born yet or were too young to remember. We now, you know, if, if you know if, if you're in college now. You know, you, you right. were born, but you were so young, you don't remember. You might have grew up reading the stories, but you don't remember that day. So pretty much everybody from now on won't, won't have that memory. So the history part of it is, is, is I think, very important. And I think you're, you see more and more of that as time goes on, and now that we have the resources. This, this place has only been open, the, the, the visitor center has only been open for a year. Right. So uh, most people have not even experienced it yet. And I think, too, that this will continue to develop here, too. The, the Learning Center is supposed to be it, it is the hub, it, and we're going to talk about a leadership program here soon, and leadership in that 30 minutes. You know, how did they make this? I mean, that's that's key, but that's a that's a heavy lift. It needs to be done appropriately. We, we you know we have a number of efforts here, like the reforestation effort. We've planted probably over 110 acres with a lot of volunteers. Well, we did it because we had good leaders who knew how to plant trees and the conversation. Everybody coming in, you guys sticking seedlings in the ground, they're coming to pay respect, but we had good leaders at the start. So that that leadership program will develop and we're gonna involve the right people to get that done, so. And I think it's important as, as we found out and as, as the displays in, in, the, in the visitor center learned, there were, we never know, we'll never know how many of the passengers and crew were involved. Uh, you know, three of the people who called talked about an effort to take back the plane, so we're fairly certain they were involved. Um, but there, there were multiples. And, and I think, you know, from the beginning, so much focus was on Todd Beamer, because that was the first story that was told. Uh, and when people ask me why that, why that's the impression, why that happened, um, the other uh, men, at least, who, who called, called their wives. Beamer did place a call to his house, but it was, it cut off in a few seconds. Whether he thought better of it or just the call just didn't go through, I don't know. But he then called a Verizon operator, he called an 800 number, was uh, got a Verizon operator near Chicago. So he spoke to someone who wasn't a family member and she 
though traumatized, was able to tell that story to the media the next day. So that's the first story that got out. And what a story it was. That was the first inkling we had as to why this place was like, why did it crash in Somerset County? Right. That was the first inkling to the public, the Todd Beamer story, that, there, that, that people on board, Americans had fought back, and he said, let's roll. It was, and, and it, but it, I, I think it, it, it I don't want to say took credit away, but other people, Todd Beamer was very much a hero, but there were many other people who were involved. I don't know if there's a, there a singular hero to this story or a singular leader, and I think I the leadership, uh, so, so we'll do that. And you can, you can look at, at just people's backgrounds and see probably the roles they would have played. Everybody has certain strengths. They probably all went to their strengths at that point. Again, there were, there were crisis, there were two, an elderly couple, there were crisis counselors on board. They weren't up front fighting the hijackers, I'm sure, but they were probably calming people down in the back. There were terrified people here. There were 40 different people. There were probably people who were saying, we shouldn't do this. There were probably people who thought, uh, no, they'll land. You know, that's what the hijackers wanted them to think. They said, we're going back to the airport. Uh, they, they, they had the fake bomb. They were trying to control them so they wouldn't do anything. This was the group, again, because of timing, because of the information they had uh, that, that said enough. We're not, we're not going to sit here and, and let you decide our fate. We're, we're going we're to have a, a role in deciding our own fate. I think the thing that strikes me about leadership is Esther Hyman was on the phone with her, her stepdaughter right to the end. And I mean, literally, they talked the whole time, but Honor said, I got to go, Mom. They're taking the plane. And she said, love you and hung up. So there's a leadership. You had the, the guys that were taking the plane, but she supported it too. So everyone on that plane supported that effort. That's one always important. One of those calls said everybody's running the first class. Right. So it was a mass of people, whether it was actually everybody, I don't know, but a mass of people was 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 moving forward on, on, on that flight, which I think was, you know, would, would be would be human nature in that sense. Again, a lot of this stuff we don't know. We, yeah, we, know, we don't know. Th there's some facts we know up until 9.57. Again, the right. plane crashing at 10.03 because of the phone calls. The phone calls stopped at that point. So then we just have the chaos of the flight data recorder and, and trying to piece some of the evidence together. Uh, part of it, you know, as with all of history, is still with Gettysburg and the Revolutionary War. There's a mystery to history that keeps us coming back that that we will never know. Uh, as with the soldiers who died in Pickett's Charge, uh, you know, a lot of the secrets, a lot of the uh, the details died with the the heroes in the in the cemetery uh, back there that we won't know. But but I, I think we know enough to piece a story together, and, and hopefully we can we can if, if some people come forward with oral histories, a lot of that would be after the fact. Right. But it still would complete the story, I think. So we're, we're hoping some more people come forward and, and volunteer to do that. Right now, the war on terror is America's longest war. It's been fought on almost every continent. In 100 years from now, if you can look into the future, how do you think people will view this place and this event? I think they'll view this as the start of the, of the uh, war on terror. This is where they started to take it back. They, they weren't successful, but they started here. Yeah, uh, 15 years from, 15 years after the fact, we're looking at it differently. Uh, but I think that, you know, a few days after 9-11, 2001, people were saying the, the first battle of the war on terror. Uh, I think it's going to be bigger. Uh, as, as things go on in the world, you know, the, the world did change that day. And it's all going to point back to those September 11th attacks. And, uh, and this was the first one where we fought back. 
And, and so I think, you know, these people are heroes. They're, they're going to be remembered as heroes, and maybe even more so uh, as time goes on and people continue to come here as they continue to at Gettysburg when the first generation is gone, when they're just, we're just passing down the stories, when there's no one who can tell them what it was like uh, on that day. That question won't be able to be asked anymore at, at, at some point. Um, it can't be asked at Gettysburg. It can't be asked at Valley Forge. It can't be asked at Yorktown. Uh, but people are still fascinated by it. And I, I think sometimes those events are bigger now than they were. I think this is going to get bigger and bigger. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everybody here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. Mm -hmm.